So ladies and gentlemen, I think I just discovered something about myself that I wasn't aware of until now. Um, I might, may or may not have a minor phobia of stitches. I'm not sure. We'll see. Yeah, my pop game is Chuck T. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. So, I don't know if I said last time, but um, I got a lava lamp for Christmas, right? Um, really cool, love it, really into it, um, big vibes, and really helps with the procrastination, definitely really helps there. Um, and at the bottom, um, and you see this with, you know, um, other uh glass shape things right um you know jars whatever they have those ridges at the bottom you know they just have those like little ridges at the bottom and i don't know how i don't i don't know what was going on but like uh, if you haven't had a lava lamp before basically you know it takes a while for the lava lampy bit the lava part of the lamp right to actually uh you know become become loose right um so you know as i'm looking at right now it's kind of just like still but at moments it like breaks it it break it goes up and then forms like and then freezes and then comes down and then freezes and then it actually starts like moving about right so it takes a while it takes a couple of hours and um yeah um as it was doing the first stage of going up um it, it was kind of I, I don't know what what it was but it was just really freaking me out um oh there you go little oh it's broken down again <laughs> it kind of like it, it kind of like volcanoes out of itself it's really weird it's a fascinating thing to watch um but yeah basically I was, I, was, I was watching it go up in the first stage and it looked like it had stitches inside of it and it just i don't know if it's just because my room's cold but it just made me shiver every time i look at it so i don't think it's like a phobia i don't i don't think i have a phobia of stitches but it's just um it's just weird. It just makes me um, uh, it just makes me makes me feel weird. This is one of those awkward things. Like not a phobia, but you know, because I can look at it. Um, but it's one of those like morbid curiosities, I guess. You know what I mean? Like whenever I see a stitch, I kind of just want to pull it. <laughs> um, which is why um, like luckily for me, I've never had stitches um needed. But um, yeah, just um, just weird. Just just um, just got just got a weird uh thing towards stitches and um, things that look like stitches but um, anyway hope you had a good week um, you know uh, guys still busting through January um, keeping it moving um, and yeah so let's jump right in. I, I haven't really got much to report um, formatsies before we begin see if I remember uh, email socials writing all can be found in the full show notes below as well as other 5 EPN podcasts and with that said the beat drop let's get into the show in a 
week where dozens of people killed after a plane uh, with 72 people on board crashes near an airport in central Nepal. A uh, distant cousin of Boris Johnson acted as credit guarantor while in number 10. And I, I don't know, this probably isn't even the biggest thing about, um, biggest Boris Johnson news this week. Um, he also, uh, I think, is, uh, is, is a bit of guess about his memoir, which is like I give a fuck. But um, uh, 800,000, by the way. 800,000. That was um, how much um, uh, it was guaranteed. Uh, the guarantor had to, uh, I guess, guarantee. I'm not a credit person, but uh, yeah, just just outstanding, just outstanding levels of um, fuckery. Shelton Nadim Zahavi as well, um, you know, just bitching and bitching, bitching about taxes, and then la di da, he got fucked on the tax front, but not fucked enough, you know, to lose his job or go to jail for tax fraud or anything like that. Of course, not because politician, right? Doesn't don't, uh, different rules, different rules, of course, different rules when you are a politician, when you have the letters M and P in, uh, after your name, um, uh, you, you can, you just can do stuff, um, you can just do stuff, and um, it doesn't matter, it, it just doesn't matter, you'll get a couple of bad headlines, um, few, you know, a few uh, rinses out, maybe on the radio or on TV, if you even choose to do so, why would you, um, and then after that, just uh, moves on to the next one, and you just continue being an MP and having uh, all the clout an MP good gets. So um, shout to Nadim Sahawi. Anyway, voters in May's local elections in, in uh, England, Scotland and Wales specifically, um, they already have actually this in Northern Ireland for different reasons, uh, but local elections will be required to show photo ID before, for, before casting their ballot, um, which um, is just another um, notch in the belt of um, Britain becoming an authoritarian state, um, which is um, outstanding to see. Um, hopefully, I'll, I'll probably cover this um, voter ID stuff um, sometime in the next, obviously, well, before May. Um, I'll do some sort of coverage on it, um, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, that's um, just just stealing the US's flow and not even the good well, not even the good flows. Just um, outstanding. Maybe we should bring the death penalty back. You know, so why don't we do that? Well, let's just, Let's just go full full hog. Let's just go literally full hog. Let's go full yeehaw and bring back death penalty. Let's let's just keep doing that. Um, next one, actually, funny enough, UK police are to be given uh, the power to shut down protests before any disruption begins because, of course, guys, um, police are the moral arbiter um, of this country and have done nothing wrong. Oh wait, last one. Met police sack David Carrick after admitting to dozens of rape and sexual offences across two decades. So so let me break that down. He had a he was in the police for over two decades and was able to commit several acts of rape and sexual offences. And only just got sacked after revelations and after he admitted to doing so um in the past week. Fired, sacked which I guess is something because politicians don't even get sacked these days um, and barely lose their barely lose anything. Um, but jail? How about that? That's, what, what's that saying? What's, what's jail saying? Because um, wow, that's, uh, and and it goes back. Funny how the police are given power to shut down protests um, as if they can see the fucking future. They they see a they see a protest get loud. Oh no, got to shut it down. Got to shut it down now. Shut it down before it even gets loud. It's just what are we doing here? We 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 know what's going on here. Like I said, authoritarian state. 
Um, so hopefully I'll find something on just the concept of authoritarian state and how this country is literally becoming one right before our very eyes. Um, we can throw in uh, Suella Braverman uh, beginning to re-traumatize uh, the Windrush generation uh, with her acts. Um, but we'll have to move we'll have to move on and um, we'll get to those sometime in the future, I am sure. So let's hop into um, you know what? Since I'm talking about Brim, I was gonna do this, I don't know, some not first, but let's do this first. So I'm going to name um forty two coups um that Britain uh planned or executed since nineteen forty five. Um and I'm gonna then read an article by Declassified UK, uh by Mark Curtis. Literally called Britain's 42 coups since 1945. Um, I don't think he lists them all, obviously, in the article itself. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to um, list I'm going to say them all um, and uh, some of the details uh, towards them because there are some details like planned or executed uh, intervention. So, for example, the first one is uh, 1945 to 48 in Ukraine. Funny enough. Um, and the planned or executed intervention was covert war to overthrow Soviet rule. So I'm not going to say all of pla- all the plans and all the reasons, um, f- uh, unless they're kind of fascinating or they're just obvious. Um, but let's carry on here. So 1946 to 52, the Baltic states for very obvious uh, for the same reason. Uh, 1949 to 52 in Albania. 1950 to 54 in Guatemala. 1952 and 57 Egypt. Uh, 1953, Guyana, formerly known as British Guyana, with an I. Uh, 1953, Iran, uh, MI6, that was an MI6 coup with the CIA overthrowing Mohammed Mossadegh government, so that's fun. Uh, 56 again in Syria, um, planned Operation Straggle to promote uprising and a coup. Uh, 1957 to 59 in Indonesia, 57 in Syria again, 1961 in Congo, 62 to 70 in Yemen, 63 in British Guyana again, uh, 64 in Brazil, 64 in Saudi Arabia, 50, 65 to 66 in Indonesia, 65 in Sharjah. Where is Sharjah? Where, where is that? Um, I, I have no idea. But anyway, uh, 66 in Abu Dhabi, 66 in Ghana. 69, Uganda, 70, 71, Libya, 70, Oman, late 70s, Uganda, mid 70s, Uganda, so there was two for different reasons, <laughs> out fucking standing, so um, the first one was uh, Foreign Secretary David Owen proposed assassination of Idi Amin, and then the next one was Prime Minister Harold Wilson proposed assassination of Idi Amin, um, hence the, uh, I, I, wanna, I, I haven't seen The King of Scotland, I know that's about him, I wonder what the the angle of that film is now because I actually haven't seen it um, I remember my pops had it on DVD but I never saw it uh, 75 in Australia 75 Australia Buckingham Palace role in removal of Prime Minister Gough, Gough Whitlam fascinating Buckingham Palace oh, oh, hmm. seems that they never have power but they managed to have a role in the removal of an Australian Prime Minister interesting how um, how you guys say they don't have power but um Apparently they do. Uh, 75 to 76 in Angola. 76 in Italy. Really? UK involved in coup plot in event of election for uh, election win for Italian Communist Party. <laughs> so they're involved in a coup plot. Wow. Wow. Keep up that capitalism, eh? Uh, 
980 to 88, obviously Afghanistan, right? That's, well, you you know, have some, you know, Mujahideen, supporting Mujahideen. I think, you know, some, some, uh, it's, it's easy to Google that one. Uh, 86 in Libya, 90s Iraq, 92 Azerbaijan, uh, Yugoslavia, 92, Azerbaijan, 93, 96 Libya, 2001 Afghanistan, 2001 Iraq, 2003 Iraq, 2011 to 2018 Syria, 2011 Libya, 2019 Bolivia, and 2019 Venezuela. Um, so that is all planned or executed coups from Britain. Um, and let's get into this article um, that backs up. Probably the uh, most well-known British coup staged by British intelligence since 1945 with the overthrow of Iran's democratically elected government in 1953, an operation planned with the CIA, which uh, which I mentioned. Uh, But the UK has been involved in at least 41 other attempts to overthrow governments since the end of the Second World War. Uh, these have ranged from intelligence-led to military-led operations, both overt and covert, with some being successful from Whitehall's standpoint, while many have failed to achieve their objectives. Many remain little, unknown, little known, whilst others uh, are shrouded in secrecy, with only a few details having emerged. The year 1953 was, in fact, a busy one for Whitehall planners since, as well as removing Mohammed Mossadegh um, in Iran. They sent a gunboat to overthrow the democratically elected government in British Guyana, led by the popular nationalist Chedi Jagan. I said that right. Uh, At the same time, they were promoting anti-government propaganda operations in another Latin American state, Guatemala. That British campaign prepared the ground for the 1954 CIA-engineered overthrow of another nationalist elected government under Jacobo Arbenz, as if this wasn't enough, UK covert operatives were also busy at the time planning the removal and assassination of Egypt's President Gamal Abdel Nasser in uh, various schemes after Nasser took power in a 1952 nationalist revolution. Nasser's assumption to power challenged Britain's position in the Middle East and the stability of the repressive conservative monarchies, many of them near medieval in nature, that Whitehall then and now was propping up, especially in the Gulf region indeed. It was such nationalist forces that were the UK's main enemies in the so-called Third World after 1945, even as mainstream journalists and academics endlessly wrote about the Soviet threat and the Cold War. Uh, in the 1950s, British regime change uh, planning was relentless, with further known operations drawn up to promote uprisings against nationalist governments in Syria in 56 and 57, neither of which were fully implemented. One plan that was put into effect, however, was the covert war instigated with the US in Indonesia, uh, intended to stimulate an uprising against President Sukarno, uh, beginning in the country's uh, myriad outer islands. It remains one of the UK's least known covert operations and eventually failed. Well, some of you know now, I guess. Um, There you go. The more you know. The more I know, I've just learned about this as well as I read. Um, Sukarno was overthrown a decade later, however, in one of 20th century's worst bloodbaths enacted by the Indonesian military under General Suharto, not Sukarno, Suharto. Uh, the declassified files show the UK backed the 65-66 slaughters of communists, leftists and ordinary villagers which, left, which killed hundreds of thousands of people. UK conducted media operations to counter Sukarno and deliver covert messages to the generals assuring them the UK's acquiescence in their takeover. Suharto ruled Indonesia, often resorting to sheer brutality for three decades. How nice. 
glad the UK supported that. Um, throughout the 1960s, there was little let up in Whitehall officials' belief they could uh, put in put in power whoever they wanted, at least certain countries. In 1961, evidence suggests that they had a hand in the murder of Patrice Lumumba, Congo's first democratically elected leader, who was uh, subject to a vicious MI6 and, and CIA campaign to overthrow him before he was captured and tortured. Um, I've heard his name in, um, you know, more leftist circles um in recent years fascinating dude um from what i've from what i've read so far um which is not too deep i must admit but um is is still fascinating um of of how much he did in such a short time you know i mean so very very similar to like you know fred hampton for example for example that you know just were just getting go get just getting started you know i mean in terms of uh, what they wanted to do and what they wanted to achieve um but anyway Imperialism, I guess. Um, media operations by the Foreign Office's notorious information re- uh, information research department, a propaganda unit set up in 1948, also helped overthrow Brazil's João Joel Joel uh, Goulart uh, in 1964. His program of ambitious land reform, extending the vote to Brazil's illiterate population, incensed the country's political, military, and business elite and the CIA, which eventually helped remove him. By now, Britain was making sure that Chedi Jagan, who had made uh, a comeback after being removed 10 years earlier, could not consolidate his power in British Guyana, as officials rigged the system in a constitutional coup to ensure he could not be elected again. The mid-1960s was also an era of palace coups uh, in the UK's client states in the Gulf region. 64, British military officers based in Saudi Arabia, who were advising the Saudi National Guard, helped Prince Faisal, uh, or Faisal uh, remove his older brother, King Saud, uh, the following year, the British sponsored the removal of the ruler of the Emirate of Sharjah. There we go, the Emirate of Sharjah. Uh, Sakur bin uh, Sultan al-Qasimi uh, in favour of another, Khalid bin Mohammed al-Qasimi. Then in the following year, they conducted a similar exercise in another Emirate, Abu Dhabi. Again, replacing its ruler with his brother, Zayed uh, bin Sultan al-Nahan, uh, the father of current president of the, U- of the UAE. In 1970, it came a coup in another closely controlled British puppet state, Oman, that was organised by British officers. It put uh, in power Sultan Qaboos, I, th- I think as they say it, um, with, a, with a Q, uh, who ruled with an iron fist for 50 years until his death in 2020, of course. Um, uh, almost, soon, uh, almost as soon as Muammar Gaddafi uh, seized power in a military coup in Libya in 1969, nationalising British oil operations, uh, Britain tried to move him. First came a planned uprising and coup in 71, which was not, however, carried out. Over a decade later, the UK offices offered its air bases to, to, to US warplanes, conducting airstrikes on Tripoli, uh, Libya's capital. Uh, that targeted Gaddafi's compound, killing a few dozen people, but not him. Britain tried again 10 years later, in 1996, when MI6 secretly funded Islamist militants to assassinate Gaddafi in the city of Sirite, I'm going to say it like that, an operation that, again, killed bystanders, but not the Libyan ruler. All this um, collateral damage is um, very interesting. Uh, just, um, and, you know, I don't I don't want to go down the route of just saying that, um, you know, um, well, I am going down the route, but um, <laughs> I've been down the route, but, you know, it's it's the fact that they don't that, that nobody talks about this. You know, what I mean, I think that's that's kind of like the issue here, right? You know, if 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 they want to, if if the if Whitehall or you know, what I mean, if, if the British government would love to 
um, have a dialogue on some of these. That would be very interesting in terms of like justification. Um, but it's the fact that they hide all this shit is the is the shady shit. You know what I mean? That's that's what's that's what's jarring, right? And I remember like um, you know, I remember I remember right when Gaddafi got killed. Um, you know, over ten years ago now. And a lot of the, you know, commentary around the time was, you know, Gaddafi's a nut job, Gaddafi's a nut job, Gaddafi's a nut job. And, you know, I have a dumb research, so, you know, I'll 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 cater to both sides here, right? Um and I'll entertain both sides. So some so, you know, comedians especially, I remember like I I have been listening to like um classic uh, episodes of The Bugle, uh, with uh, John Oliver and uh, Andy Zulsman. And um, you know, they did a couple of Gaddafi stuff and you know they were like just harping on the fact that he's batshit right um but shit man wouldn't you be batshit if you know you were trying to get clapped by the British and the US for fucking decades literally decades wouldn't you go a bit do Lally I think I would um so I don't know man it's just, just shit like that just um it, once I say he's a nut job and you know needs to be and you know obviously his people end up killing him um but yeah, man. Why? Why were they doing that fifty years down the line? It was forty years, uh, four years before. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, uh, where was I at? Uh, however, it wasn't only Gaddafi, uh, Nasser, and Lumumba who are believed to have been targeted for assassination, according to evidence that has emerged. Uh, excuse me. Former MI6 officer Richard Tomlinson alleged, excuse me, that MI6 drew up plans to kill Yugoslav leader. Um, Slobodan Milosevic in 1992. Uh, then there's Uganda, 1969. It has been contended that the UK planned the assassination of President Milton Obote, who uh, Britain confronted because of his nationalist economic policies and opposition to apartheid South Africa. Oh, such a bad thing. That's such a bad thing. You know what? Big up the UK for doing that. Big up for even planning that assassination. How dare he? How dare he? have nationalist economic policies and of all fucking things to support the opposition to apartheid South Africa. Disgusting. Disgusting. How fucking dare he? Uh, oh, wow. Oh, that's just that's just disgusting to think about. Uh, ugh, ugh. Yuck. Horrible person. I mean, bin him. Throw him in the bin. Um, so there's plenty more here. Um, that uh, There's plenty more details um, that I'll just leave uh, for sake of time. Um, but I think you guys get the picture. Um, Britain's shit and has been shit, um, especially overseas. Um, why are there forty-two clues, coups? Why are, why are there forty-two do- documented, quite documented stars? Uh, you know, put that in bold, underline that. Forty-two known coups, right? There might be more. Who knows, right? Um, but fuck, fuck. Just you know, what I mean, just it's crazy. It's crazy that. Britain had so much, um, so much uh, uh, clout to do this. What the fuck are they doing? What the fuck are they doing in these countries still? You know what I mean? Like, what, what the fuck are they doing in Egypt? What does Egypt have to do with anything? You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, and it, it makes more, it makes much more sense. You know, when it comes to like Saudi Arabia, Iran, all that shit. That that shit just when you learn about this shit, it just opened, it just opened your brain. It's like oh, and then you connect it to now. And like how, you know, uh, Britain gives weapons to Saudi Arabia and are basically, you know, co-signing the, you know, complete destruction of Yemen right now. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, I'm surprised 
Um, there's been any mention. There wasn't any mention of Israel at some point. Honestly, I'm very, very, extremely surprised. Um, but yeah, shout out to shout out to Britain. Um, I started off obviously in a week where to just um, uh, you know, just say how garbage they are. But um, didn't need didn't need to. Um, turns out that there were plenty of coups, and we'll say 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 uh, uh confirm that confirm all those uh, suspicions for me. Okay, so um, I said last week that I wanted to cover um, this uh, inclusion report um, analysis, whatever you want to call it. Um, so this is via the USC Annenberg uh, Inclusion Initiative, um, and uh, it's actually uh, penned by Dr. Stacey L. Smith, uh, Dr. Catherine Piper, P-I-E-P-E-R, Pepper, Pepper, Piper, Piper, Pepper, Piper, Piper, I don't know, apologies, and uh, Sam Wheeler. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's a long ass report. Um, the link I've given in the description is actually a PDF. So if you don't want it, you know, if you don't want to download it, fine, right, go for it. Um, but that's the only way you're going to see it. But I'm just letting you know, it's not a, you know, a link to a site or anything. It's literally just a PDF. Um, so just so just a fair warning. It's not even a warning. It's just a PDF. Get over it. But um, yeah, just, just you know, don't want to download something you're just like what the hell is that and then realize oh that's the thingy that came up and you know and you're pressing it several times i've done that before you press it several times and it's like downloaded several times it's annoying so just so you know it's a pdf so if you click it it's going to be downloaded in some in some fashion wherever you're wherever you're downloading it so just a fair warning um but yeah so they have plenty of graphs you know what i mean and um uh, yeah just uh, uh they have uh, women directors across um 1488 uh, top grossing films and they have all the name and it's only 73 individual women directors between uh, 2007 and 2022 um yeah so plenty of um plenty of uh, uh, uh findings and stuff like that uh, i'm just going to read the key findings um that they put and uh, maybe um, after that, and there's, there's plenty of more writing after that in terms of findings. Uh, they go via obviously, well, obviously gender, right? Um, uh, but also go race, race and ethnicity, uh, which I might tap into. Um, but they also have uh, basically conclusion, and I might do that. I might just do the key findings and the conclusion um, just for the sake of time. But there's so much information, and I just wanted to hype this up because um, we need this shit. This is the this is the real shit. That um, and the real raw numbers that are necessary in order to have these conversations and have these arguments uh, when it comes to gender-based and race and ethnicity-based um, conversations about uh, you know in this case directors right but um, you know we can do the we could do the same thing for writers producers actors um, and all the way down the all the way down the line. But this is just for directors, so uh, let's jump into the key findings here. Uh, this, so this one's uh, pertaining to gender, and then the next one will be race and ethnicity. Uh, when I'll get to that. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, and start us off with each year uh, we examine uh, specific demographics, gender, race, and ethnicity of directors across the hundred top hundred top domestic uh, fictional films in North America. So obviously this is based just in North America. As a as another caveat. Um, so this has nothing to do with you know Europe or anywhere else. It's just North America. Um, so that you know, obviously that 
provides a lot of information, but doesn't obviously, you know, provide information for Britain. Where's the British version of this, by the way? I'm, I need I need a British version of this because I find that very fascinating. It's probably worse. <laughs> it's probably most likely very fucking worse. Anyway, uh, directors across the 100 top domestic fictional films in North America. Uh, directors are singled out in our work as they occupy the top leadership position in movie production. Using Box Office Mojo, we identify the highest earning fictional films released theatrically, um, after excluding uh, documentaries and any other content not constituting a movie. And the films were produced locally and abroad and distributed by an array of companies. In total, our longitud- longitudinal sample comprised 1,600 films uh, released theatrically from 2007 to 2022. Below key findings are presented by gender, race, slash ethnicity, and the intersection of these identities. Right, so gender. Uh, a total of 111 Directors were hired across the uh, 100 uh, top uh, fictional films in 2022. Of these, 91% were men and 9% uh, were women. Uh, this is a gender ratio of 10 to 1. 10, oh yeah, 10.1 male directors to every one female director hired. Uh, the 10 women were Olivia Newman, Gina Prince-Bythewood, uh, Olivia Wilde, Jess Kemp Thompson, uh, Kat Coiro, uh, Rosalind Ross, uh, Helena Ragin, uh, Cassie Lemons uh, and uh, Chinonye Chukwu and uh, Marie Schrader, which is actually kind of fascinating because I have ne- I have not heard of a couple of these names. I'm aware of the films, um, so I'm aware of like Body Body Bodies by Ragin. Um, I met I am aware of uh, well, obviously Chinonye, um, Cassie Lemons. I'm aware of uh, Maria Schrader. I'm aware of She Said. I've heard about it, but I've not. I, I didn't realize she directed it. So, so that adds some sort of, I don't know, some sort of personal um, commentary there. Anyway, to little anyway. Uh, there was no change between 2021 and 2022. Um, in comparison, 2007, there has been a 6.3 percentage point increase, but no meaningful deviation from 2008, which was 8%. Uh, a total of 73 individual women and 770 individual men were hired to direct a motion picture across the 16-year sample time frame. Uh, this was a gender ratio of 10.6 men to every one woman. 78.1% of the female directors, but 40. 78.1% of the female directors, but 54% of the male directors only helmed one top-grossing film from 2007 to 2022. Right, there we go. The top-performing male director was Tyler Perry with 18 films. The top women director uh, directors were Anne Fletcher and Lana Wachowski with four films each. See Lana Wachowski of Matrix fame. Um, in terms of distributor, Sony Pictures Entertainment, five worked with the most women directors in 2022, followed by Universal, two, and other all other distributors, two. Uh, over 16 years, however, Universal Pictures was the top performer among major distributors in 2022 and five years after the explosion of the hashtag MeToo Me and Time's Up movement, Lionsgate, Paramount Pictures, STX Entertainment, 20th Century uh, and uh, Walt Disney Studios did not hire or acquire one film with a woman at the helm. There was no difference in average Metacritic score, a measure of quality by gender. Uh, male-directed films on average achieved a score of 55 uh, uh, while female-directed films received a score of 57.8. On a standard academic grading scale, so A to F, male and female-directed films both land in the mid to high F, or failure range. Uh, women comprised of, of comprised 48, 41.8% uh, 
uh, of directors in US dramatic competition at Sundance Film Festival from 2015 to 2023, and 38% of Helmers across episodic television from 2020 to 2021. Uh, clearly, there's still a steep drop-off in access and opportunity for women directors from independent television spaces directing top fictional fare when, com- when women comprise only 5.6% of Helmers from 07 to 22. Right, I'm going to do the uh, race and ethnicity bit and I'm going to skip the conclusion for the sake of time. Um, but yeah, still mad fascinating in terms of what we're getting to. Anyway, uh, so let's do race and ethnicity and there's also a bit on women of colour I might uh, do as well. Uh, so race and ethnicity. 20.7% of the helmets across the 100 top uh, films of 2022 were from an underrepresented race- racial ethnic group. Of these, 11 were Asian, 5 were multiracial, multiethnic, 4 were black, 3 were Hispanic, Latino. Uh, This represented 3.8 white directors for every one underrepresented director. 20 of the underrepresented directors were men and only 3 were women. From 21 to 22, there was a 6.6 percentage point decrease in underrepresented directors, though 2022 was on par with 2019, 25%, and 2020. 17.5%, 17.5%, but significantly higher than 2007, 12.5%. A total of 712 individual white directors and 131 individual underrepresented uh, directors worked between 07 and 22. This was a ratio of 5.4 white directors to every one underrepresented director. Um, and they named some names, Tyler Perry, obviously. Um, then uh, John McCauley Serra with eight films. Um, Fucking hell, I, I'm really suck with names, don't I? Um, for four underrepresented directors have made seven movies across each uh, across the sample time frame. Uh, Anton Fuqua, uh, M Night Shyamalan, Shyamalan. I, I think I've, I feel like I've been saying his name wrong. Shyamalan, uh, Malcolm Dealey, and Tim Story. Uh, in terms of white directors, Steven Spielberg held uh, the top spot with twelve films, followed by Clint Eastwood with eleven and Ridley Scott with nine. A full 64.9% of underrepresented directors and 55.3% of white directors work only once across this 16-year sample. Um, Then they talk about studios, which I don't really care about. And then, obviously, the Metacritic scores. uh, White directors uh, was 54.7% and directors from underrepresented racial ethnic was 55.9%. So it's actually higher in both cases. For, for just gender-based and racial-based, uh, which is actually very, very fascinating. Uh, between 2015 and 2023, a total of 41.8% of US dramatic competition directors at Sundance were underrepresented. Uh, this is consistent with US census, benchmarking at 40.7%, according to Directors Guild of America State Statistics. Uh, 34.5% of episodic television directors were from historically marginalised racial slash ethnic groups yet when it comes to top grossing films uh helmed uh, underrepresented directors helmed only 15.2 percent of all movies from 07 to 22 uh for women of color only 2.7 percent of all directors in 22 were women of color those three women were obviously gina prince by the way for women king cassie lemons for the Whitney houston ting and chinonye uh chin yeah chinonye i'll say that right chukwu for till uh, across all 16 years of the sample, women of colour were hired as directors on only 21 movies. This translates into 1.3% of all directing opportunities, or a ratio of 63 white directors for every one woman of colour. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, it's worse than I thought. It's actually worse than I thought. That's crazy. I thought it would be like 3% at least, but 1.3. That's crazy. Or The ratio is absurd. 63 for everyone. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, the 21 directing jobs were held by 16 different women. Only five women of colour have worked more than once across a 16-year sample. Ava DuVernay, Gina, Jennifer Ute Nelson, uh, Cassie Lemons, and Stella Meggie. Uh, consistent with findings in the gender, race, and ethnicity section, Universal Pictures was top former, uh, and the Metacritic thingy was uh, s- uh, white, white male. Oh wait, wait, wait. Okay, sixty-two point two for women of color, fifty-four for white males, and underrepresented males fifty-four point five, and white females fifty-five point seven. So women of color have the higher. Interesting, 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 interesting. So I'm gonna leave it there. Um, so and like I said, there are so many. This is a, uh, this is a twenty twenty ish page report, twenty two yeah, total. But obviously, you know, discounted the title, um, title page. So you know, twenty ish page report, and it's a lot. Um, they have um solutions here. They have a uh, conclusion. So one of them is uh, the pace of change. Uh, has been slow for women directors. Uh, next one is underrepresented directors mostly retained gains from prior years. Uh, number three is hiring women of color was the exception, not the rule. Duh. Um, and then they have limitations uh, to be note to note in their uh, research, I guess. And obviously some solutions, uh, which um, is very fascinating to look at on a glance. But yeah, man, this is the shit we need. We need more of these kind of reports. Um, and also just from a location base as well. I would love a UK-based one. Um, I would really love to know, um, and uh, yeah, just um, fuck, <laughs> it's it's a lot, <laughs> it's a whole lot. The fact that women of color actually have a higher average um, in in especially Metacritic score says a lot. Um, so you know, just keep keep uh, you know maybe hire them until they regress to the mean, I guess, because clearly they're outperforming um, as black women always do. Funny enough, um, in life in general. Um, but yeah man Jesus yeah shout out to the USC Annenberg uh, Inclusion Institute for this one um, just uh, absolute absolutely balling in terms of uh, the research okay so uh, talking still film and uh, I saw this uh, interesting article via the Hollywood Report, um, and uh, I just I don't, this is very personal in terms of just why I'm talking about it, as is most things. But um, I don't know, extra personal, I guess. If you're not into screenwriting, then why would you uh, be interested? But um, I do find this interesting because uh, you know uh, people talk about um, AI, you know, and all that stuff um, in recent years um, because. It's here, right? It's it's genuinely here in in a lot of cases. And um, I remember talking last year, maybe a couple of times about um, certain like Dali. I remember talking about specifically um, ChatGPT. I've probably talked about before. Um, and this is relate this relates to ChatGPT. So if I haven't talked about ChatGPT, I am now. Um, but this is specific to um, screenwriting. Um, so literally, it's called Attack of the Chatbot Screenwriter's Friend or Foe. Um, it's written by uh, Katie Kilkenny and Winston Cho. Um, and yeah, I guess it's um, asking the question, is is ChatGPT a threat to um, a threat to 
livelihoods of uh, writers, um, not just you know, obviously screenwriters, you know, TV writers, and uh, other stuff. But um, yeah, man, I just it, it definitely. I, I mean, the answer is yes for me. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if um, I mean, I saw a, <laughs> I saw a funny headline where uh, I guess someone gave or showed Nick Cave the artist um, uh, a the result of someone saying write a song in the style of Nick Cave to ChatGPT and he said it was awful um so guess not on the on the money but hey man the fact that you can even give it a ghost is a bit I, i've seen the examples man so it could be a bit it could be a bit weird uh, weirdly interesting but anyway let's jump right into this see what it says is ChatGPT a sign that automation is coming to film and tv writing as far-fetched as it sounds the arrival in november 2022 as a free prototype of the ai power chatbot um, which <laughs> I tried actually to sign. Uh, that's just the thing. You have to sign up to it. So um, you're giving some data on that front. Um, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not into it. I'm not going to sign up to it or anything because you need an OpenAI account, quote unquote. Um, but um, I have enough accounts, thank you. Uh, which has jolted observers with the sophisticated, fluid writing it can produce when prompted, even in the form of poems, essays, and yes, short scripts. Has self alarm bells about the disruption that the chatbot could wreak on the. Is that how you spell wreak? I've always wondered, wreak, wreak havoc, uh, wreak on the work of uh, entertainment scribes. Still, top film and TV writers are sceptical that the technology in its current state imperils their livelihoods in any way, even as they remain cautious about the potential for future advancement. Uh, quote, do I see in the near term replacing the kind of writing that we're doing in writers' rooms every day? No, I don't, says Big Fish and Aladdin writer John August, who has tested the free uh, research preview and talked about it on the popular Script Notes podcast, which he co-hosts with Craig Mazin of The Last of Us fame. Um, still, he adds, quote, There certainly is no putting the genie back of the bottle. It's going to be here, and we need to be thinking about how to use it in ways that advance art and don't limit us. Another prominent writer and showrunner speaking to the THR anonymous, anonymously, because famously um, Hollywood Pro love uh, giving out opinions that are anonymous, um, <coughs> anonymous voters uh, for the Oscars, bitches, bitch made, show your face, stop being a bitch. Um, anyway, uh, has taken ChatGPT for several test rides and says that the chatbot uh, seems incapable of writing funny jokes or producing results that might be useful to include in a script without, quote, substantial creative input from me. The showrunner adds uh, when people conclude that this is going to replace professional writers, I think they're sort of swallowing an Elon Musk style fantasy about the future that is not actually connected to the technology, unquote. Uh, launched by the AI research company OpenAI, ChatGPT, I'm going to say GPT, or CGPT, because um, in, in, I'm sick of saying ChatGPT, in its publicly uh, available iteration, can produce polished, if wrote, uh, R-O-T-E, by the way, uh, pitches and knock lines for films and television shows, as well as generic outlines and scripts within seconds. The current version, trained on large quantities of text and code, all predating the fourth quarter of 2021, also occasionally produces some falsehoods when answering factual queries. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman has warned that this version is incredibly limited, but good enough at some things to create a misleading imp impression of greatness. He added, uh, it's a mistake to be relying on it for any important, uh, anything important right now. It's a preview of progress. Still, several writers say the incipient, is that you say? It's the incipient technology shows promise as an ancillary creative tool. ChatGPT or CGPT, see, I broke my own rule right there, could help with time consuming uh, ro uh, rote work for writers, like generating potential scene locations or character names, 
August suggests that non-native English speakers might use it to produce more fluid writing in the language. That's a good point. I like that. That's a good, that's a good chart. It can also offer plot or character ideas. Savage Grace writer and former WGA uh, West president Howard A. U. Rodman uh, compares the chatbot to oblique strategies cards that aim to uh, re-inspire artists with prompts. He says he can use the bot to suggest something, uh, to quote, suggest something I would never think of myself, maybe something smarter, maybe something stupider, or more obvious, unquote. There is cause for concern for some about future refinements to this kind of technology. Rodman call, uh, calls uh, CGBT uh, clear ability to improve its responses, uh, the more prompts it receives, a little chilling. Uh, but adds, quote, writers should not blind themselves to the ways in which AI technology can be useful in many ways. Uh, they should be. They should also be aware of the opportunities it offers employees to do the thing they love best, put downward pressure on fixed costs, unquote. Franklin Leonard, uh, founder and CEO of screenplay platform The Blacklist, The Blacklist. I have to say it like that because of James Spader. Shout out to James Spader. Uh, that show, that show was banging for like a few seasons, and I kind of just fell off it because it was just going round. In it, it just got way too deep for for <laughs> just for the sake of continuing on the show. It was just it just got a bit, uh, just got a bit uh, od. Um, but anyway, blacklist. That's how you say it, the blacklist. Uh, doesn't worry about ChatGPT replacing writers, but he believes it has the potential to upend the labour market and says it's uh, quote necessary that the communities that are likely to be most affected by it, in particular writers, are the ones who are defining the guardrails around how it can be used in the context of the business. I don't give a fuck about the business. Although he's not privy to potential conversations, Franklin hopes that the Writers Guild is discussing this technology as he believes the long-term financial health of the industry is incredibly closely tied to that of writers. Uh, the WGA of, of America West uh, said in a statement, we're monitoring the development of ChatGPT and similar technologies in the event. They require additional protections for writers. And that's good. That's, that's good. In terms of like a legal standpoint, I feel that's definitely worthy. And, um, you know, it, it's fascinating that someday they'll have to put in, you know, their demands as a union as a writers union to say um you cannot replace writers with ai <laughs> they're gonna have to put something of uh, something or other of that nature um in into their like you know uh uh collective bargaining agreements and stuff like that that's very fascinating that they're gonna have to do that at some point anyway even as technology is rapidly advancing studios likely won't roll the dice in exploiting work scripts art or otherwise solely generated uh, by ai just yet there's no copyright protection for such works because intellectual property law doesn't recognise ownership by non-human creators. AI-created works would enter the public domain upon release, potentially limiting commercial interest in the format. There's been a push for protection of works created by AI, spearheaded by Stephen Thaler, or Stephen Thaler, of this, uh, the CEO of neural network firm Imagination Engines. 2018, he listed an AI system, the Creativity Machine, as the creator of an artwork called A Recent Entrance to Paradise, while excuse me, listing himself uh, as the owner of the copyright under the uh, Work for Hire Doctrine. US Copyright Office... This is getting real deep, isn't it? Real into the fucking weeds. US Copyright? Fuck. Fuck, you know, all right, come on then. US Copyright Office denied the registration, finding the work, quote, lack lacks the human author authorship necessary to support a copyright claim. And that, quote, the nexus between the human mind and the creative exploration, unquote, is a crucial element of protection. Thalia sued the office in June over the rejection, but the office said it's unwilling to, quote, depart from a century of copyright jurisprudence. Let me skip a bit, because they're talking about fucking, like, fucking US copyright law, and I'm just like, uh, okay, 
I just want to know if, if people are worried about it. That's all I wanted to know. Fuck. Um, but that, well, you know what? Okay, let me read. Let me read a bit of this part because um, I feel like you know this links to um, shout out to uh, shout out to my our boy Ryan. Um, he did write a good piece on just uh, the recent uh, artists and graphic designer led um, uh, saying no to AI. Basically, um, uh, 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 what do you want to call it? Online protest, I guess, um, or movement. Um, that's been a thing, and uh, yeah, that's obviously extremely sweaty um because they, they're taking they're taking from eyes you know what i mean um, there's sometimes you see artist watermarks in the dali or whatever um ai output and that's just i mean that's obviously a gray area but the fact that they're literally just taking graphic designer works and poorly poorly uh imitating it to the point where their signature is still there or watermark is still there. Bit weak. Bit weak on that front. Anyway. Uh, whether AI programs built machine learning models to analyze the patterns of copyright works infringe on the copyright of ISIS is up in the air. Courts may find that the training an AI program like OpenAI's DALI 2, which generates complex images from text prompts using copyright art, does not fall under the fair use defense, which allows for use of protected works without permission as long as they are transformative. In November, a proposed class action was filed against Microsoft, GitHub, and OpenAI, claiming the billions of lines of computer code that their AI technology analyzes to generate its own code essentially cost, essentially constitute piracy. A finding of copyright infringement in the first of its kind suit against AI programs they do, that don't acknowledge prior work would severely dampen the economic prospects of exploiting works generated by AI in Hollywood. So that's, that's, that's an interesting precedent. Um... If if uh, if stuff like Dali and all those are you know uh, are pinned down um, to 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 not I guess um, infringe on people's work, um, but then obviously there's you know what if they do remove successfully remove the watermark, you know what I mean if you it's it's like when um it's like when an artist uh, uh, you know claims actually there was a recent one um, that I saw the other day. Um, uh, Rachel Chinariri, um, she recently uh, had uh, she she made a few tweets about some artist um, that basically uh, stole her whole whole flow. Right? She they uh, she this other woman uh, was like gassing up an EP, and um, it had all of the hallmarks of a recent music video she did uh, to the point where she said basically lyrics from Rachel Chinariri's track. And it was it was very overt. It was more overt than most. Um, there was what that one time when uh, someone um, claimed that Adele stole her um, stole her vibe uh, music video. Um, and I think song as well from uh, uh, I, think, I think it was Hel- was it Hello No um, the recent one uh, the the one with the I forget what it was. I forget the I forget the music video. I forget the name. But yeah, the recent Adele um, album. And um, or the the notable music video from that I forget what it's called. Uh, but yeah, someone claimed they stole that. But what do you do with that? You know, like so, so obviously some like um, you know Marvin Gaye and the Blurred Lines case, right? That was that was, that was obviously um, one there. But um, you know, what can an artist like Rachel Chinariri do? What can a screenwriter do? What can a uh, what can a graphic designer do? I guess for screenwriters, and I'll finish there because for the sake of time, but um, basically it's it's finished. Um, they actually do 
Um, they actually asked ChatGPT to generate a series of f- uh, feature film elevator pitches um, that mix certain hit, uh, mix certain uh, uh, established hits, and they also ask uh, John August um, uh, uh, to give notes on it. So, for example, and I'll get back to the last point, um, Die Hard meets You Got Mail, and the logline for ChatGPT was, when a group of terrorists take over a high-end Manhattan department store on Christmas Eve, a scrappy small business owner must team up with a tough cop uh, to take them all down and save the day, all while trading banter and flirting over email. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, John's notes, while small business owner doesn't bring anything helpful here, if the Meg Ryan equivalent were an anti-cop activist, there'd at least be some tension. Um, they also did uh, Fast and Furious meets Independence Day, uh, Hangover meets La La Land, and yeah, so, you know, if you want to spin those, go have a look. But um, yeah, I guess for screenwriters, it's a little bit different because screenwriters aren't throwing their work about like that in terms of like, you know, next to, you know, someone like graphic designers, artists, uh, you know, painters, stuff like that. Um, they're not putting their work out as openly as that um you know i've got my stuff i've got samples of my work in a google drive that people can see you can feel free um feel free to read but um you know you can't it's hard to plagiarize a sample in my mind um so uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna see a chat gbt uh you know uh 10 pager and just gonna be like that's mine that's that's my you know i mean it's not it probably won't happen um, in in especially in recent re- as as it is now, but um, you know, like I said, graphic designers and artists are seeing their work being plagiarized, and that's a problem. Um, in the same way, but but in the same way as an artist, um, claiming another artist, um, has stolen their work, you know, sometimes they just don't not able to do anything because they just don't have the money to actually, uh, you know, chase them on it. Um, but sometimes it's very overt, like in the Ch- Rachel Chinneriri case, I believe her on that front, I believe that the home girl, the other girl stole it, um, stole her vibe, and stole her flow, stole her aesthetics especially as well, um, I believe that, I believe her, um, but what's she gonna do, <laughs> I mean, like, does she have pee to sue the girl, probably not, um, so she has to keep it moving, um, but yeah man, it's a grey area, the whole AI thing is a real grey area, but um, it is good, that um, human artists um, are keeping an eye on, are keeping an eye on it all, and uh, I feel like it's definitely something worthy to think about. Is it gonna take me out of work? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, personally, that's just me. Um, I don't think so. In, especially in, especially as it is now, don't, it, it won't be. It won't be anything. But um, maybe, maybe down the line, man. Who knows? Who knows? If it reads enough scripts. Shit, man. Anything can happen. So we're going to finish with a piece on good old consumerism. And uh, I found this just whole uh, article very fascinating. Um, so it's called uh, Your Stuff Is Actually Worse Now um, It's by Izzy Ramirez via Vox Or The Goods via Vox um, good by, The Goods by Vox Specifically And uh, yeah Just um, uh, just a little Just a little Little, 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 little consumerism Which I'm, I'm here for of course 
my beloved 10-year-old black bra, great start, finally broke last Christmas. The elastic had uh, some slack and it had been fraying for a while, but its death sentence came when the underwire popped out the side. While it wasn't particularly special, just a normal t-shirt bra, it was comfortable and had clearly lasted a long time. So I did what any sensible person who is afraid of change would do. Bought the exact same thing from the same brand again. I eagerly waited for my shipment of my new bras in two trendy colorways to come in. When they arrived, I noticed that there were a few key differences. There was a new fourth clasp, the band was tighter, and the material was a whole lot softer. Certainly, these were improvements, I thought. I was wrong. Within a few washes, the hooks had become mangled, unable to neatly adhere themselves to the clasps. Instead, they would claw at my back. The straps frayed quicker than I expected. Nothing changed in my care. I had assumed that because I treated my previous bra carelessly throughout my teens and college years, these new versions could withstand similar conditions. I felt unmoored for months. Why would the same item be worse years later? Shouldn't it be better? But here's the thing. My lackluster bra is far from the only consumer good that has faced a dip in comparative quality. All manner of things we wear, plus kitchen appliances, personal tech devices, and construction tools are among... Construction tools? Really? They're downgraded construction tools. Crazy. Um, Are among the objects that have been stunted by a concerted effort to simultaneously expedite the rate of production while making it more difficult to easily repair what we already own, experts say. In the 10 years since I bought that old bra, new design norms, shifting consumer expectations, and emboldened trend cycles have all coalesced into a monster of seemingly endless growth. We buy, 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 and we've been tricked for far longer than the last decade into believing that buying more stuff, new stuff, is the way. By swapping out slightly used items so frequently, we're barely pausing to consider if the replacement items are an upgrade, uh, or if we uh, even have the option to repair what we already have. Worse yet, we're playing into corporate narratives that undercut the labour that makes our items worth keeping. Quote, If you change the style regularly, people get tired of the style, says Matthew Bird, a professor of industrial design at the Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, continue on with the quote, they start to treat cars like sweaters. It's uh, become grossly accelerated. The pressure to make more stuff, of course, lowers the quality of what's being made because the development and testing is just accelerated even more, unquote. Design is more than the mere aesthetics of an object. It can also be a solution to a problem. These problems do not necessarily have to be physical or tangible. Systems and virtual environments are also subject to design. Uh, ideally, design is the marriage of appearance and utility that creates a considered end result. When we're producing objects or services for millions of people, we're talking about industrial design or the professionalization of these processes at scale. According to the Industrial Designers Society of America, industrial designers are often focused on three things, appearance, functionality, and manufacturability. Uh, That last part is where the most change is happening. Historically, Bird says, if a a craftsperson wanted to make something, say a tea kettle, you would, just, uh, you would adjust it with each attempt. Maybe the first iteration was hammered metal and the handles were uncomfortable. Perhaps the next was ceramic, but didn't sing when the water was ready. You would go back to the drawing board. Quote, eventually, in a couple of generations of tea kettles, I'll be making the perfect form that did everything perfectly, Bird says. It's all great because I was responding to my consumers, customers, sorry, one at a time, and it was handmade, unquote. 
The first major shift came when the Industrial Revolution introduced machinery and tooling into the design process, exponentially increasing the scale production. Now, instead of hammering out one kettle, you could use a machine to stamp out the parts, rinse and repeat. However, if you designed a bad tea kettle, you'll be stuck with thousands of them. Huge, expensive mistake. This is still the case. While machines have dramatically increased how much can be produced and how fast, humans are still mostly involved every yeah, mostly, humans are most, still mostly involved every step of the way from idea, ideation to production. Today, nearly everything is assembled by human hands, even if some parts are 3D printed, cast, or spun by machines. Quote, You've done all these other steps, and then you have the person who sits there and actually puts these pieces together, says Cora Harrington, a writer and lingerie expert. It doesn't matter how complicated. It doesn't matter how simple. We don't have robots that put together our clothing automatically. Uh, so it's all done by an expert. Unquote. The Great Depression, too, changed the very nature of consumerism. The economy desperately needed stimulation, and consumer goods were one way to do it. It was around this period that advertising heavyweight Ernest Elmo Calkins, what a fucking name for a brand, uh, for a, uh, for a, for, yeah, a brand, let's just say brand, for a firm, that's what I was thinking of, laid out a selling strategy that came to define purchasing habits for the next century. Consumer engineering, or how advertisers and designers could artificially create demand, often by making older objects seem undesirable. Real estate broker Bernard London is often credited with coining this process as quote-unquote planned obsolescence through his 1932 paper that suggested the government put a lease on products in life. Quote, that's when manufactured products started to be uh, sort of done in season for the cycles and fashion, uh, Bird says. Fast forward a handful of decades. And now several generations of people are conditioned to buy the new thing and to keep replacing it. Companies, in turn, amp up production accordingly. It's less so that objects are intended to break, functional planned obsolescence, if you will, but rather the consumer mindsets are oriented around finding the better object. But quote-unquote better doesn't always mean long-lasting when companies are incentivized to produce faster and faster and faster. Let's circle back to the bribe or a decade ago and it's lesser younger sibling. When I spoke to Harrington, the lingerie expert, about my dilemma, her first question for me was about price. To my recollection, the old bra and the new one were about the same, somewhere between thirty and forty dollars. Is that how much the bras cost? Is that how much they cost? Thirty to forty dollars? Shit, yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, I guess so. That makes, I guess that makes sense. That's, I don't know, it sounded crazy in my head, but I guess it makes sense. Anyway, um, that for Harrington was the key. In the last 10 years, in the wake of the climate crisis and the pandemic and steady and then skyrocketing inflation, I see where they're going, the cost of fabric, other materials and labour has increased. It can be difficult for consumers to recognise that the landscape has changed because they're not primed to see the full picture, Harrington explains. She mentions how when she writes about the state of fast fashion, she often gets pushback from new readers who say that older fast fashion pieces have lasted a long time. Quote, yes, many of us bought cheap clothing 10 years ago, that's still fine, she says. But 10 years ago, our clothing was higher quality than it is now. That is actually part of the point, unquote. It's actually impossible to buy the same bra I had in high school for the same price. It's simply more expensive to produce now than it was then. Quote, people don't exactly want to pay more for for that stuff, Harrington says. So what has to happen if everything is more expensive and the customer still wants to pay the same price? Something has to be cut and that's often going to be the quality of the garment, unquote. Usually that's accomplished with a change of material. This could be a thinner, new-to-market fabric or a more fragile clasp, for instance. The average customer isn't going to know the difference, especially when shopping online. Quote, there is an entire generation of consumers 
at this point that doesn't actually know uh, what high quality clothing feels like and looks like, Carrington says. It gets easier, I think, for consumers to just not know any better, unquote. The electronics industry is also susceptible to material changes because products are competing against each other on price points, says Gay Gordon Byrne. What a name. The executive producer of the Repair Association, quote, even though designers may say, oh, this is just as good, the components themselves are increasingly plastic instead of metal, she says, they're using more glue instead of screws. There's some definite uh, design trends that are making these things not work very long. A friend of mine was a, a big HP reseller and he said that it could be uh, it, that it used to be uh, that you could take a $4,000 HP laser jet that you'd have in your office, drop it uh, off the back of a truck and plug it in. It will still work. Excuse me. But that was no longer the case as new generations came around and they were, excuse me, and they were made with more and more plastic, unquote. How long have I got left? Okay, that's actually a lot of this left. Fuck, I've, I picked some long ass articles today. I don't. I, sorry, apologies for that. I usually try and find stuff that um they're uh, not as eternally long, but um seems to have bottled myself on here. Um, have I made my point? <laughs> I think I think the inflation point is definitely um important. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there for the sake of time. It's been an hour, so I'll leave it there. Um, but and there's the rest of it if you want to read. Obviously, that's why you know, for these reasons is why I put these on the full show notes so you can read yourselves. Because sometimes I don't finish it. Um, but I think the inflation point is very important. You know, uh, for a lot of people, you know that th- everyone has that thing, right? That um, you take note. Obviously, you. Usually, oh, sorry. Uh, you take note of you. Take note of as a you. And um, and that's your that's your that's your point that's your flashpoint for inflation. So for for a lot of us in the UK, um, it's Freddo's. So it's the, so Freddo's is basically this small. Uh, it's like a chocolate bar, right? Um, the size of your hand, most likely. Um, probably less than your hand actually. Um, if you have a reasonably sized hand like mine, it's it's the size of your it's the size of your palm basically. It's like palm size, right? It's not it's not that big. It's for kids, and it? it's like it's like two bite. It's actually just two bites, and you're done. You could do it in one bite, um, but yeah, it's, and it's in the shape of this, you know, cartoonized frog, right? Um, it's, it's fine. It's fine. There's nothing to write home about, right? Right, write home about. Um, but for me, back in the day, it used to be five p, and now that shit's like sixty five p. Like that's my that's my basis for inflation. And now, honestly, while I was reading that, especially the inflation point, while I was reading that. I was thinking about just, you know, I don't shop online as often as most, right? I have a decent wardrobe, right? But, uh, you know, I don't, it's just not, you know, I, I most of my, a majority of my kit is just from, you know, just some black-owned businesses, um, but, and and the rest of it is probably just Adidas, right? Because <laughs> I'm just an Adidas kid. Um, but even with that, right, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about just, like, the tracksuit I'm wearing now by Adidas. So I'm just like... Hmm, this is new, but how like, but how would this work if they did it ten years ago? You know, would it be are the materials different? Like, uh, you know, and I can't, I can't gauge that because I haven't been buying Adidas tracksuits for ten years. Maybe if I buy this exact same tracksuit ten years later, maybe I'll feel the difference. Maybe I'll notice it. But, but this is the thing when it comes to fast fashion. Um, when it, yeah, when it comes to fashion in general and just um clothing in general. They places like Adidas don't do the same shit every time. Um, go to like a shoe shoe world, right? Um, a thing with um, you know, basketball shoes, for example, right? Which I was into for a bit. I used to constantly watch videos on it, 
And, um, you know, there was this uh, shout out to Wear Testers, um, Chris from Wear Testers, absolute G. Um, he's, I think, I think he's been outsourcing his stuff now. He's been, he's been, uh, having other people do, you know, socials, for, for, uh, socials and, um, you know, just like little mini reviews and stuff like that, which is cool. Big ups to him that he's actually able to do that now. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I was, I remember like watching these videos from like a few years ago. Um, and you know, he's constantly like, uh, talking about, um, you know, reissues of, uh, certain like Jordans and he was like, and because he's of age, he he was aware of how older Jordans like the like the new like you know when they actually came out you know <laughs> Jordans where he 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 re- remembers the material he uh reckon he he goes by smell he smells new kicks and he's like this is different <laughs> like it's literally like that you, he smell tests that shit um and you know feels to fam- feels to you know leathers different compared to the compared to the original it's never the same. Right now, if I buy a pair of Jordans right now, I don't care because it's a pair of Jordans and it's fine. If it, if it stays on my feet for a few years, I'm good. I'm happy. Right? If it looks fresh, it looks fresh. But for him, he notices that shit because he has bought Jordans over the years and he isn't a stu- he isn't stupid. But we can't all be that person, and that's the unfortunate side of consumerism. And kind of just like the thing that we, I think, just don't bother to recognize. Um. And I think it's hard to even give a shit, um, you know. Even even when even when I, when I like uh, even when I buy vinyl, I think this is a good point for me personally. When I buy vinyl, I buy reissues. I don't care about first editions. I just don't. And I know why people do, but I don't have the pee for that. First of all, and that's kind of like where the you know fast fashion shit comes in, right? Because I don't want to buy this. I don't want to buy this pair of jeans for fifty quid. Instead, I'm going to buy these these ones that are twenty quid. They're jeans, right? <laughs> if they fit me, they're fine. You know what I mean? That's consumerism, right there. Boom. And that's the and that's the problem. I'm not saying we have to buy more high quality shit. If you don't have the pee for it and you need some jeans, then fuck, you need some jeans. If you if your bra broke and you need a new bra, go buy a bra. You know what I mean? Do you? But that's the thing we ha- I think we have to realize when it comes to that. Be, you know, seeing a seeing a Freddo cost sixty five p makes me want to scream. But for some reason, I don't do the same when it comes to a pair of socks, for example. Right? I I I have some Adidas. So- this is a great example. Another great example. I have some Adidas socks I bought maybe a year or so ago. I've already got a hole in one of them. It was a three pack, and I've already got a hole in one of the socks. What the fuck's going on there? I don't wear. It. I didn't even wear. Funny enough, I don't wear it as often as a another pack. Of socks I just got off a of Groupon, just some you know basic you know basic tier. Um, I think it's like Saruti something. Um, just black, just black navy grey socks, right? I just needed some black navy grey socks, right? Um, and I got like a big pack of them, right? Just on Groupon for a deal, and they still last me pretty fucking well. Like the the quality on that is absolutely crispy. I I I wear them constantly. I wear them probably more than any of my other socks of different brands. I have like one, a few pairs of like Jordan socks, which I don't really like wearing. Um, I have the aforementioned Adidas socks that I have been wearing since, you know, at least the summer. And I've really got a hold in the Adidas ones. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? What does that tell you? It tells you something. Um, when I bought some start socks, which are dramatically more expensive, like 25 for just one pair, those got a hole in it after a few years. Uh, it doesn't make sense. But anyway, uh, consumerism is just a, it's a hard thing to take account of. And, um, 
you're you're very in the moment when you're online shopping, and I feel like that's probably the issue. You know, you're just very in the moment. You see a good pair of like saying, you're just like boom, cop, but you don't take account, you know, the 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 I guess like the 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 arc, the arc of change that it's had throughout the years. You know what I mean? What if I I'm, I want to buy a pair of Adidas Superstars. I've never had a pair of Adidas Superstars, and I really want a fucking pair of Adidas Superstars. Right, just because I want a pair of Adidas superstars, right? Consumerism, me, I get it, right? You know what I mean? That's that's my shameless, that's my shameless consumerism. Want I just want a pair of Adidas superstars, just for this, just to say I got a pair of Adidas superstars to give me some hip hop points. That's all it is, right? I want to give myself some hip hop points, and um, I don't know how Adidas superstars were in the eighties. I don't know how were that were they built better? Maybe, maybe. Will will the pair I eventually get break after two years? Shit, maybe. But how can I change that? I'm get you, you know you get what you're given. You you get what you're given. That's kind of the point, I guess, when it comes to that. And um, you know, they 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 make concessions on the price point. Everyone wants this. Everyone wants the same thing for the same price, and that's fine. I get it. But I don't know, man. Something's got to give, and. Uh, quality of garment is is that and uh that's that's, a, that's the unfortunate side of, of of it and uh just uh yeah man consumerism in general i mean i didn't even i haven't even gone to mobile phones which fuck me off like the fact that i don't have a headphone jack on my phone really pisses me off but obviously that's kind of a different conversation but anyway i'll finish there ladies and gentlemen from the fifth end podcast network I've been trying to say this bit more good. The intro music was Too Much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for the bit to use. You can find both their links in the full show notes. Thanks to Friend of Ivy Nappy High, who just dropped his feature list for his new album, and it's tasty. Looking forward to that. I think it's called Menace. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, yeah, his link in the full show notes. Uh, charismatic, interlude, you know, you know the C's. And uh, yeah, with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I'm sure I was trying to do the same. But until next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.